this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. So you're an entrepreneur and you've got somewhere between a million and 10 million in annual revenue. And you're trying to figure out what's next. Maybe you wanna scale up, maybe you wanna sell, maybe you wanna bring in a manager and delegate some of the day-to-day stuff, bring in the next generation of leaders, maybe you wanna pass it down to your family. All of those options, the one prerequisite is that it's built to sell, that it's actually something that you could pass on to another generation without you. And that's really what we try to evaluate using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the questionnaire, and then you're going to get a readout of how your business would be viewed by an acquirer across eight unique dimensions that acquirers care about. Again, it takes only about 15 minutes. You can do it free at valuebuilder.com. I think you're going to like this next interview with Laura Gisborne. So Laura has been through the sale process six times. She started nine businesses in her life and so has got you know tremendous experience going through this exit process. A couple of ones that I think are really interesting in this interview. One, she talks about it early in the interview, the idea of getting both a, an NDA, non-disclosure agreement, but also a non-compete signed uh, when you get to the stage of sharing financials with a potential acquirer. I thought that was kind of a unique approach. Um, she also talks about using the ego of the buyer, have a listen for that uh, to your advantage, um, how she used her experience working at McDonald's to systematize her business, which I thought was pretty cool. And an interesting conversation about how to pick your number. I think you might be surprised by the way she approaches it. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Laura Gisborne. Laura Gisborne, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you, John. Glad to be with you. So I'm reading your bio in advance, and it says you've had nine companies. <laughs> you are a yeah. serial entrepreneur, my friend. Give us a sense of the journey. Like, how did you get to, to Sycamore Canyon? What was the journey for you? Well, I think for a lot of people, uh, it's probably a similar thing. It kind of, you know, had this calling and it, it found me instead of me necessarily finding it initially. Uh, but once I got the bug of entrepreneurship, then I couldn't stop. So I married into a family business uh, when I was 23. And then when that uh, relationship, not the marriage <laughs> per se, but when the, the relationship with family had kind of run its course, uh, my husband and I wanted to go out and open our own business. So we sold our ownership there into uh, to our family members and then went out and opened up uh, two more restaurants and then sold those and then uh, had children. And that kind of called us to be in a different place uh, with time and how we wanted to spend our time. So moved to Sedona, Arizona and got into real estate and real estate sales led into real estate investing, which led into real estate development. And uh, then the retail world started popping up and we uh, had the opportunity to acquire a couple of businesses, a couple of retail operations, and then started some of our own and uh, followed our passion for wine is kind of the short version of that long story and uh, looked at, you know, where we spent a lot of time and money. <laughs> it's probably not a great confession, uh, which kind of led us into the wine business. Got it. And so you started uh, a winery called Sycamore Canyon. Is that right? Correct. Got it. And, and a good crisp Chardonnay? 
Yeah, good Chris Chardonnay, wonderful, deep, rich Merlot. Uh, I'm really getting thirsty. Cabernet. I'm recording and- this in about about <laughs> the, the hour for something like that. So, so yeah, some good blends. You know, we made ten different varietals. So it was a lot of fun. Cool, cool, and uh, but it's expensive. I mean, a winery must be a very capital intensive business. Well, it's interesting because what we realized, John, early on is that we were really good at sales and marketing, right? That was a a place that we were strong. And it's interesting because I guess we're going to kind of talk a little bit about uh, my most recent business sale. And what we started with was a tasting room. We wanted to find some way to uh, tap into the tourists. At that time, Sedona, when we opened that business in 2005, uh, Sedona had somewhere between three and four million tourists coming through every year in this tiny little town. So we were looking for a way to tap into that and create a niche market, like something that people weren't doing. So we focused on Arizona wines and, um, and then planted our own grapes and, and kind of, you know, the business grew. One business grew into another business is kind of how it goes. Got it. And so the store, the retail uh, operation was called The Art of Wine, as I understand. Right. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So, so help paint the picture for, for me on what the art. So I walk in the doors of The Art, art of Wine. What am, I, what am I seeing? What's the experience like from a kind of a retail experience point of view? Yeah, well, it's such a great question because the experience is actually what made it so hugely successful. And that is that people were coming uh, to be entertained, to to have the experience of tasting, to have conversation, to have, you know, we d- it was kind of an interesting thing because we had a tasting room with but it was more like a, a cheers, if you're old enough to remember the, the sure. show, right? Uh, where everybody knew your name and we had people come back again and again. And uh, we didn't have any bar stools, so people would stand there for hours, <laughs> which is kind of a thing. But but they just had such a good time, they didn't want to leave. And so uh, while they were there, after we would did a little wine tasting and made friends, uh, we would have them, you know, buy housewares and we sold clothing there, uh, which was kind of a funny thing that we we had kind of wine related clothing that we kind of went to market and got expanded and we sold $140,000 with the clothing out of the first out of that little store the first six months that we were open. So that gave birth to another store uh, called Erica Morgan. We opened up a, a designer boutique next door just because clearly there was a market for it. Got it. So in the art of wine, you can obviously taste wine. You can buy wine, I'm assuming, the stuff that you yes, taste, yes, obviously, as well as some of the uh, the other sort of peripheral businesses, the, the uh, apparel and so forth. Yep. Got it. And so give me a sense of the trajectory from starting the Art of Wine store to the time you sold it, like in terms of you know, kind of revenue, like wh- where did you start? Where did you sort of get it to before you sold it? Yeah, you know, we uh, we had an idea and it's so funny because I still have our, you know, kind of our goal setting and what would it look like. And, and when we sat down and set out our, our, our vision of what we wanted to create, we thought it would be great to have you know, just some nice cash flow there. We had hoped to, our, our first project, our first request, you know, in looking at numbers, we thought this would be a great thing if we bring in $30,000 a month. And our first month, we brought in $30,000 almost to the penny. So then we decided we wanted to stretch a little more, right, and expand the business. So, um, you know, at peak with the the retail operations, uh, we were about 750000 a year. And then we, in addition to that, had a wine club, where we shipped wine um, all over the United States. We're in 37 different states. We were licensed to ship, which, which brought in probably another 350 a year. So just a little over a million dollars in sales. Got it. And so the wine club was a subscription. People would subscribe right. and get a, was it a, a sort of a, uh, a curated bottle of wine each month or how did that work? 
Well, what we asked them to do, you know, we invited people where they're there and they were loving what they were tasting um, to sign up for a wine club and we would ship to them quarterly. And then again, with states, there's lots of rules and regulations for what you can ship and how you can ship. And we got into the business in 2005. Uh, the Arizona at that time really didn't have a lot of infrastructure for licensing. So we kind of got in at a good time. Um, and then uh, then we, as we became licensed in different states, we basically could ship two cases of wine to consumers uh, per year. So we would ship out, you know, four times a year and uh, just kept growing it from there. And what was the, the cash model on the wine club? Did people subscribe for a year in advance or did they pay per yes. quarter? How did, how did that work? Yes, they signed up for a commitment of a year. And then if they didn't, uh, if they didn't cancel, if we didn't hear from them, you know, we would regularly communicate with them. But if we didn't hear from them, then we would just go ahead and renew them. Um, though, you know, people were pretty happy because what we did also for them is we really wanted to have a wine club that matched their taste. That was something personalized. We weren't just trying to get rid of old stock or something that we didn't want to have happen for them. So we, in the course of their tasting, would find out what they liked. Did they like sweet wine? Did they like dry wine? Was there any favorites that they had? Uh, we communicated with them. They could put in their request and, uh, you know, connect with us and let us know in advance uh, what they wanted. And they also received discounts off the wines. Um you know, by being a wine club member. So if they had additional things that they needed for parties, we made a really amazing uh, pecan pie flavored sparkling wine that was a tremendous hit during the holidays. So, yeah. Got it. And so what would the renewal rates be on on those wine club subscriptions? Like what, at what rate were they renewing? Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, you had, I would say our attrition was probably about, 30 to 35% after the first year, right? I mean, just because people would, would move on to other things. Um, but then we, you know, we learned how to cultivate that relationship and, and, and do other things for them, right? So uh, again, in 2005, we were completely novice at any kind of internet marketing or how to communicate with people and email campaigns. There was a lot we had to learn during the process uh, for how to, to keep that relationship deeper than just here's a box of wine. Got it. And so what was the biggest thing you learned about nurturing subscribers in that time? Well, I'll tell you one of the things that was a great investment um, was having a wine club manager, having a, a key person. And she worked virtually, right? So she was, was with us in Arizona, but she could connect with people all over the country. And so people felt like they had a relationship with their personal person that they could call and relate to and have, you know, an email address directly to a person um, where, you know, maybe if their credit card was expired, there was a, you know, a, a human connection that had them feel really uh, special. And I think that that was something that we did that, that made a big difference for keeping people in the system, keeping them feeling like they were cared for and, uh, and that, you know, that we, we really appreciated their business. Got it. So what what point in the art of wine? So, so as I'm doing the math here, you've, you've got a little better than a million dollars in annual sales between the wine club and, and the, the work through the retail store itself. At what point did you think about selling? What, what, what was the trigger? <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to ask me this question. So uh, my husband had a goal of being retired at 50. 
And at 51, uh, he was just decided he didn't want to go to work anymore. And uh, so he, and at that point, he was he was going to the store. I, I didn't work in the day to day operations. That's not my my forte. I'm, well, I always say he's the beauty and I'm the brains. Um, <laughs> so I was kind of behind the scenes. But uh, you know, at that point, he would go to work maybe 15, 20 hours a week with our golden retriever Oliver. And Oliver had his own wine. People would come in and visit to see the dog as he was growing up over the years. So uh, at about seven years, six, seven years, six years. Uh, he just decided he wanted to be retired altogether. So I don't want to work in a wine store anymore. I want to go do something else. I said, okay, great. So that at that point, we had great systems in place and, um, and, a, and a wonderful team working for us. And it was a pretty easy transition to be able to pass that on to somebody else. Right. And it was also good timing with the lease was coming up. So it was time for, uh, you know, rather than us renewing for an extended term, we had a good relationship with the landlord on, on the property. So we said, Hey, we're going to sell the business and, uh, would like you to negotiate, you know, new terms with new people. Got it. And so for you personally, so I get your husband's kind of, you know, bogey around the 50th birthday. <laughs> Way to play golf. Yeah. Yeah. What, what about you personally? Because you were part um, of this equation. Yeah. Big thanks, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for asking. It's an interesting because at about that same time, my, um, I started receiving uh, invitations to speak, like kind of like you and I connecting here and people asking me, you know, how did I do it? And I didn't know what it was because I hadn't written a book. I wasn't a speaker. I wasn't an author. It wasn't anything I was looking to do. But I started being asked to speak for women's organizations and business training. And um, and so when I put my toe in the water, what I realized is that there was a whole lot of people out there uh, building businesses and really struggling. The thing that they were so passionate about was eating them up and they didn't really have time freedom. And I also knew that uh, while we had been really blessed with building our businesses all along, there was more of a calling for me as my children grew up to do more philanthropy work and do more legacy work. And um, so uh, it was a good time for both of us really to to free up. And uh, now we still have our home in Sedona, but we have another place in Southern California, uh, which is great for me because I can travel to speaking opportunities and do the work that I do from here much easier than Sedona. One of the questions that everybody has on their mind is how much is enough? I mean, how much money do you need to live comfortably the rest of your life? Obviously, your husband made the decision that he wanted to be on the golf course by 50. How did you, how did you guys come to the conclusion that you, you could quote unquote retire. I know you, you're not retired, but in a sense, retire from economic growth. <laughs> like what was the math? Are you, were you using the 4% rule or, or was it some magical number in your mind? Like what, oh, how did you come yeah, to that? It's, it's so great. It's such a great question, John. And it's one of the things that we talk about frequently. I, I did host an event each year as a fundraiser called the path to freedom. And one of the things that we really get people clear on is what's your number, right? And, and people's idea of how much they actually need is, is, not usually what they actually need, right? So so financial independence from our experience has been totally related to debt reduction and creating passive streams of income and having, you know, real estate's been very good to us and we've been very grateful for that. Um, and it's not a whole, I mean, our youngest baby is 20 now, right? So uh, we're almost done with putting three kids through college. Um, you know, our, our financial needs are not so great at this point. And, uh, you know, the, the big secret seems to not to be having not having consumer debt and creating multiple streams of passive income. Got it. And so in your case, you guys came to the number by, uh, by, 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 let me ask a different question. You've, <laughs> in the people you've seen, have you seen them overestimating what they think they need? 
Yes, absolutely. And, you know, and here's here's just, you know, a round number. Let's just say this, you know, for the sake of arguments, you know, if somebody feels like they need one hundred thousand dollars a year to live comfortably. And let's say that, you know, maybe your personal residence is paid for or you have, you know, a low rent number and you don't have consumer debt. Right. Your, your things are paid for. You actually have you got to eat. You live pretty well. You like to travel. There's not that much that people need. And, and it's it's probably pretty present for me, John, because the work that I do with charities. Uh, when I was researching my second book, Limitless Women, we found that close to uh, 2.8 billion people still live on less than $3 a day in the world. So it, for those of us having this luxurious conversation about, uh, you know, how much is enough, uh, you know, most people in the world, I think, can live on $8,300 a month, right? That's $100,000. Uh, you know, if you're a person who needs to live on $20,000 a month and you're not living necessarily in Manhattan uh, or San Francisco, you know, this, these are, the numbers are what the numbers are. So, that's just my experience. We travel all over the world. We were really, really comfortable, but everybody needs to figure out what their own number is. And uh, and I think that that's an important part of planning with your business when you're looking at your exit strategies is, you know, how much do I actually need? And where is that going to come from consistently if I decide to sell the business? Got it. And so in your case, you guys did the math uh, and you figured it was it was a green light. And so you decided to sell The Art of Wine. Maybe walk us through the next step. Uh, how did you go about marketing the business? Did you hire a broker? Like, what did you do to kind of get the thing sold? Yeah. And, and that's kind of that's such a great question, because this one was different than what we'd done in the past. Right. When we sold our first business, we had hired a business broker and really looked at it. And we had a couple of different businesses that we sold, a couple of different retail uh, operations that I had sold because I was a real estate broker. Um, this one, we used the uh, an online service uh, that was really inexpensive. And it was just, you know, almost like a done for you service, right? As far as the marketing, it was really, you know, the valuation process to kind of walk you through the steps. We had some experience from selling other businesses uh, of how to evaluate the business, what we, what would work for us. Um, but there's just incredible resources available online right now. You can name the company if you want. The, who, who, I, you, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher it. It's biz buy, sell is to sell you you have to tell me <laughs> well well there's one there's one called bizbysell.com which is probably the biggest one i'm guessing yes. it was probably that yes got it so you 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 posted the business uh on bizbysell.com now you mentioned you you'd come to some uh of your own opinions about what what the art of wine was worth uh right. what do you think it was worth and how did you how did you come up with that conclusion yeah. So, you know, there's there's lots of different formulas for how to evaluate the business. And so for us, with this being a retail operation, what we looked at uh, at that point, we'd been, you know, we had good tax returns and we could tell uh, how much of the business was profit for us. Right. Like what was our net profit? And so uh, there were things that we ran through the business legally that were business, quote unquote, business expenses uh, that were actually, you know, maybe lifestyle expenses and could be considered uh discretionary right and how how you would structure that um and so what we did is figure out what our what we felt like our net profit was each year and uh, looked at that as a formula of times three and then we looked at you know what's the what the resale value was or what the actual product and inventory was in the business and then the assets of the business and so um the assets of the business being obviously you know the furniture the fixtures the database the customer list the online presence things like that Got it. And so what was the formula you used? Three times pre-tax profit? Correct. 
and then just three times pre-tax profit, or did you also add in the cost of of the hard, like the, the value of well, the assets? You know, we we actually when we were listing it, we listed those things separately, and this is you know maybe a sales technique that that it's you know again up to people, other people, what they want to do with this. But what we found. Uh, worked well with, especially with retail operations, is it was a nice negotiating point to be able to kind of throw in inventory, um, and you know it gave you some room for negotiations and and help buyer feel like they were getting a good deal, right? I mean, we knew what the number was that we wanted to, but it was just, and I'm not trying to like falsely inflate the value of the business, but but you know inventory is not going to be worth anything to us once the business is gone. Got it. And so you separate you you. Uh, Listed them separately, but then right. uh, and then kind of threw it in. Knew it was in your back pocket to throw in. Interesting, and and so maybe talk about. So you put again. People listening may have may not even know BizBuySell.com exists. Uh, mm-hmm. So so maybe just explain the next step. So so you you list the business. Right. Um, then what are you getting inbound inquiries or what what happens Correct. next? Yeah. So then we would get quite a bit. You know, I mean, immediately we started getting lots of inquiries and. Um, and then there would be a process. So people would be wanting to see numbers, right? I mean, of course you want to see numbers. And I, you know, for me, my background, um, I thought I'd be a lawyer when I grew up, not <laughs> doing what I'm doing these days. Uh, but I uh, worked in the legal field all the time when I was in college. And I um, and I went to law school, although I'm not an attorney. And so I, I kind of had that piece of where's the protection, not only for us uh, before we start disclosing a lot of information, but also for our buyers, right? There's there's certain things that you wanna be able to protect them around. So before we would disclose any numbers, we would ask people to sign two documents. One was a, a confidentiality agreement, right? Before we shared any numbers with them. And then the second document was a non-compete because what I realized is that there were, you know, we were the very first tasting room in Sedona. I don't know how many there are now, probably seven of them now. Um, but there were some practices that we had that, you know, that we, that we created and that we're early adopters, uh, that I didn't want to just be having our competitors be shopping our business and then taking those practices and, you know, building their own businesses from that, if that makes sense. It does. How did you plan to enforce the non-compete? You know, that's a great question. Um, it, it's almost like there would be people, we only ha- we only ran across one person who was really, uh, you know, it was interesting because we, we had one uh, pros- prospective buyer who was wanting to open up his own winery. And so he was clearly shopping us to find out what he could, right? Um, so he could go and take it and use his, his thing. And so he wasn't willing to sign the non-compete. And I said, okay, we're not willing to share numbers with you. We'll wait. Got it. So as inquiries come in, you're asking to sign a non-compete and a non-disclosure agreement. Did you get, other than the one guy who was starting a winer, did you get any other pushback on the non-compete? Not really. No, I, I think it was pretty clear, you know, because I, it starts in open discourse. And what I loved about, and again, this was a different experience than in the past when we were working through a broker and you didn't really have a lot of human connection. Um, with this, you, you were having a conversation with people and there was something uh, for us also, John, that, and I don't know how other business owners feel about this, but with this business, uh, you know, it has provided a great livelihood for our family for almost seven years at that point. You know, we'd raised our family, our children there. I mean, it, just, it was something about paying the business forward that felt very personal for me with this business. And I wanted to make sure that whoever was going to take it on um, was going to really, it, it was almost like t- sending your kid off to college, right? Like kind of having it go to the next level and having that next buyer really 
um, feel supported in the process and then also to uh, to see what their vision was, right? That they were going to take care of our customers, that our customers were going to have the same level of care and experience that they'd experienced with us. Well, yeah, it's not like you're selling, you know, plumbing parts or no disrespect right. to plumbers, but at the end of the day, there's some sex appeal to what you're doing, right? You're, you're creating an environment. People are, it's, you, you said it yourself. It was cheers circa, you know, 2000, whatever in, in Sedona. Was, <laughs> right, right. You know, you wanted it to, to yeah. get into a good hand. So, so, okay. So you get the NDAs and the non-compete signed. Uh, yeah. what What's next? Are you getting multiple offers or have you got one that clearly seems to be most interested? Like what was the next step? Um, you know, it was pretty, I would say we, we were had two or three and then the next step was actually to have, you know, site visits. So numbers are after they sign the documents, the numbers are going out, right? We're sending out a, a couple of years of tax returns and, um, and so we can, we can, again, I don't know how much you want to go into all of that, but you know, so tax returns are one piece, but then we would also send out if they wanted cash flow reports, P&Ls, how we structured things, because they look, not everybody knows how to read a tax return, right? And once things are in, I don't know about you, but our tax returns can get voluminous sometimes. So um, yeah, so keeping that pretty simple and then uh, trying to keep it simple and then having a site visit, right? Having them come out and actually see the site. I mean, and the, the buyers were actually from out of town, so they'd coordinate dates to come and, uh, and visit the site and have a meeting, you know, face-to-face to see if it made sense. And um, I guess what know, I'm trying think, to get at, are, are there multiple, when you say site visit, are you entertaining kind of multiple people at this point or have you locked in on one person pretty quickly as the potential buyer? We only had, we, it was pretty easy, actually. It was pretty seamless. And so I'd say on this particular sale, it was just really one buyer that came, that got all the way to the site visit. There was more telephone conversations, probably two or three, three people that we were in conversations with and, you know, negotiations and back and forth. And are you flexible on the number? And what's this look like? You know, because once people got a hold of financials and they would ask how you structured things and where we were coming up with our numbers and you know, once you get into tax returns. So we had about three people that we were having those conversations with, but only one that actually came to the site visit. And as soon as they came, they were a yes. And it was pretty fast after that. And I should have asked earlier, but were, had you listed the business uh, on BizBuySell with an actual price point that you were asking for? Yes. Okay. So so the people knew what you were asking for. So yep. they were going in sort of eyes wide open. Um, when they came to visit you was this somebody uh, uh, somebody from Sedona or was it someone no. looking to move to Sedona they moved to Sedona actually to buy the business and how important was the physical location and the prospect of being able to live in sunny sunny Arizona to the <laughs> overall sale well it was you know I don't know if you've ever been to Sedona but it's a pretty magical place yeah and, yeah. Uh, yeah but it's you know it's an interesting thing because we moved to Sedona I was 30 when I moved to Sedona and it was um you know, there's no industry there. So part of the appeal, I think, for the the buyers was that they would have a built-in opportunity to make money, right? There's People don't get a job transfer to Sedona. So you've got to have something that has a good infrastructure that works with locals and tourists uh, to create a sustainable revenue all year. Where were they from? They were from, uh, they were living in Washington State at the time. Rainy, dreary, yes, <laughs> cold <laughs> ten months of the year, Washington State. Yes, yes got it, exactly. got it. So they, they, that was part of the equation. So, so when did like talking numbers? So maybe talk to me about their first offer. So you had you had published the price. Obviously, yeah. they weren't prepared to to accept it. I'm assuming on its face. So what was their 
uh, first offer? How much less on a percentage basis uh, than what you were offering? They actually, they actually were prepared. Oh, uh, forgive on, me. Yeah, no, 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 it's good. It's, it's actually, you know, when I said that, you know, I think that there's a place of how quickly can a buyer get their return on investment? And when you look at, you know, what I found in, in my experience of selling businesses is that every person who's ever bought a business that we've owned considers themselves much smarter than we are, which is great. Uh, and I'm so glad that they're smarter than we are. So they look at our business and see like all the places that they can do better and make more money than we can. And, um, and I say, hallelujah, go for it. <laughs> I'm very happy for them to do that. If you can make it more profitable than we have, I am very happy for you. Right. So, um, you know, I feel like pricing the business fairly where they could say, okay, if we're going to do this, this is how long it's going to take us to get our money back. And so I say, if you can get your money back, you know, easily in three years and they could see how they might be able to get their money back in a year and a half or two years, it seemed like an, an easy no brainer for them. Got it. And so what did you guys negotiate on anything? Um, I think that the place of throwing in, you know, the, the request was to throw in the inventory. So it's always like, you know, I had positioned it that way initially, uh, just to have as a, as a, in the back pocket. And so be careful what you ask for it. It worked out, uh, that they asked for that and I was happy to do it. How much was the inventory worth? Did you think roughly? Oh, good. Good question. Um, I would guess, uh, probably not, I mean, I don't know, relative terms, probably, you know, 25, 30,000, something like that. That was a chip used to close the deal. Yes. Got it. Got it. And so what was the tricky? It sounds so, I mean, I got to be honest. It sounds so, so it sounds so clean and easy. What, What was the biggest hiccup along the way? Um, oh, we had definitely had a hiccup. And the hiccup was, if you might remember, I said that when we started this business in 2005, the state of Arizona didn't have a lot of clarity in their licensings for tasting rooms, for wineries, for, uh, you know, beer and wine stores. There was a lot of gray areas in 2005. So we kind of got in under the wire because we were the first tasting room in Sedona. Um, what ended up happening when we went to go sell the business was that they, the state had now, you know, realized that this business that was virtually non-existent, you know, when we started had grown to be, gosh, my husband knows these numbers better than I do, but, but it, it, it grown to be pretty large. And at that point, you know, there's wineries all over the state and lots of businesses being generated, lots of jobs are being generated. Uh, so the licensing got much stricter. So one of the things that we had to do was find a license, which we didn't realize until we got into the process, uh, find a license that would allow them to have a bar license, basically, right? It's like a beer and wine tasting bar, uh, which is an expensive license, different than what we had had when we purchased, you know, when we started the business in 2005. So we had to find one and there was only one available in Yavapai County. And then we had to negotiate with the person selling that license. And then I had to get the buyers to buy it in their name, not in my name, before we even close the sale. So that was a little tricky. Um, so we had to really see if they were serious about it at that point, right? Because if they wanted to do it, they were going to need to buy this license. And so what was we actually- li- How much did the license cost? Uh, the license was twenty thousand dollars. Mm. So it's not a, not an insignificant number. Not an insignificant number. So we were we were far enough along, and we all understood that you know it, we weren't trying to do anything, um, you know, to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. We knew that there was going to be some stuff we we're going to have to do, but we just ended up deducting it from the price. I said to them, "You guys need to buy this license. It's something you're going to need to do business." as we've been doing business, because uh, they could certainly keep it open. They could certainly do it as, as just a, 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 
wine store, but they couldn't necessarily do some of the same things we'd done with events and tastings and stuff like that. We wanted to make sure that they had the same freedoms. So we deducted that from the sales price and they went ahead and purchased the license in their name. Now, as you look about the the other exits that you had, you mentioned that in some cases you've had representation, you've, you've used an intermediary like a business broker and other cases, in this case in particular, you, you chose to do it yourself. Having now seen, having some distance from it and also gone through it in both cases, um, can you sort of characterize the pros and cons by having a representative represent you in the sale versus uh, kind of listing directly with a, a site like BizBuy? Well, I think, you know, when we first, the very first initial sales, right, for the first three businesses that we sold, it was important to have representation because we didn't really know what we were doing, right? And we did, we needed uh, that expertise from somebody else. And it wasn't in our necessarily in our highest and best to learn how to be business brokers. That wasn't the business we were in. Um, what I would say is that as we started moving along and selling more and more frequently or more operations, at this point, we sold six different companies. Um, it just became a no brainer to do it ourselves with a lawyer and with an accountant because we could see the process. And it's, it's also uh, something that's interesting. Um, I was listening to your book on Audible recently, thinking about this, but there's a whole different way of positioning yourself when you start a business, knowing that you're going to sell it versus uh, how many of us start, you know, as entrepreneurs, as we have a passion, we get into doing something, uh, but we're not necessarily thinking about our exit strategy in the beginning. And if you can actually think about your exit strategy, when you're starting your business or building your business, those systems and infrastructures are in place, it makes it very easy to sell in the end. And did you start the art of wine with the view that you would sell it? Absolutely. And so what decisions did you make early that were were with the idea that eventually you would sell it? <laughs> well, one of the things that I, uh, you know, my first job was at McDonald's. And, um, and I think that that's important because I think God had a bigger plan to teach me about systems and the beauty of systems. So one of my goals was how do I create uh, an environment that is easily replicable and can be done by a high school student. Now, you can't really have a high school student there because the laws wouldn't let us have anybody under the age of 21, but we could have somebody who is 21 years old. Uh, we could teach them sales skills or have them be really um, great at what they did as far as personal service and customer care, and then having um, kind of in-house and out of house, meaning what was going on in the store and then having, you know, our financial and our bookkeeping and our uh, sales and marketing arm in a different location. Right. So it's just, there was a place of like having the systems in place for team, for operations, for processes and procedures where everything was really um, written and documented and simplified to the, the most tiniest degree that we could possibly think of. So it was easy to teach somebody else and replace people. I think I can hear Oliver in the background, by the way. <laughs> Oliver has passed on. I'm sorry to say, but this is Tucker. No. Oh, <laughs> he's, sorry. He's very sweet replacement, and I apologize. No, he's... no, that's, that's all good. Um, to talk, I'd love to give our listeners sort of a, a, an idea of what level of specificity you went to to document the procedures so that you know, a theoretical high school student could uh, could sort of step into the art of wine and operate. So, can you give an example of like how 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 much systematize you know like a very specific thing that people did that that maybe other companies would not have systemized that you did you chose to? 
Well, I think that every um, every role in a business has to be broken down into you know really clear roles and responsibilities. And so, if if you've got a person who is you know front of house opening the store kind of thing, that would be one piece. But but let's say that you know other businesses where you've got uh, admin and you've got a receptionist or you've got somebody who's doing bookkeeping or you've got somebody who's working in the warehouse or somebody who's doing manufacturing. I don't know what types of businesses you know. There's so many different types of industries. The, the bottom line is that if those, if somebody can take what I call the short hurt and take some time and actually write those things down and reduce all the tasks into writing that need to be done to deliver the promise, right? To actually deliver on what it is that that person's role and responsibility is in that day. Um, when that's in writing and it's clearly communicated with team, you don't become dependent on key players. And that's a place where I see way too many small businesses. You know, we work with a lot of businesses that are in the uh, 10 million and under teams of 50 people or less. It's really easy when you're a small company to become very dependent on key players. And if that happens, um, it, it causes a place for where the owner doesn't have autonomy, right? You don't have time freedom. If you're always worried, if this person doesn't show up, things are not going to work out well. So everybody in the business has to be replaceable. The best way I know to do that is to have incredible, you know, get really clear about vision and mission and the culture of who you hire and have people be very independent thinkers and easy to follow tasks, but then have the tasks be so ridiculously simple and clearly communicated that there's not a lot of room for confusion. And did you use any technology to communicate? I mean, did you create like Microsoft Word documents or PDFs or like what was the actual uh, sort of tangible um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a, a standard operating procedures can be done in a Microsoft Word. It's very simple. You can save them as PDFs. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's just basically the book of what does the office manager do? What does the bookkeeper do? What does the, you know, the store manager do? Who's who's in charge of hiring? Who's in charge of day to day operations? What's the procedure for deposits? Um What's the procedure for customer care? How is a client greeted when they walk in the door? Um, you know, all the different levels of day-to-day of -day operations. We were open 363 days a year. So uh, pretty consistent as far as uh, having an opportunity to make money every day. What's the priority uh, of service and sales? Got it. Excellent. You mentioned uh, your work these days uh, involves business owners. Maybe, maybe you could talk about what you're doing uh, now that the Art of Wine has been sold. Yeah, thanks for asking. So at this point, um, I'd, I'd say my time is split. My working hours are split about 50-50 between uh, volunteering and doing philanthropy projects. Uh, this year, I was in South America twice. I was in Africa. Uh, I was working with four different nonprofits on the ground internationally. And then I work with nonprofits locally as well to help them with scaling their reach. Right. And the same, what I found is that uh, in the nonprofit sector, a business is a business, whether it's structured for profit or nonprofit. So uh, a lot of nonprofits have great hearts and great vision and they get stuck, right? They kind of hit at what we would call in the for profit world, a revenue ceiling, right? They get to a place where they can't grow any anymore. Um, so it's usually related to organizational development, building teams, looking at what they're doing for marketing, their outreach. So I help them do that. And then in the for profit sector, um, I work with companies, uh, you know, I would say our, the majority of our clients are 
business owners that are either women or family-owned businesses that are well-established and uh, the owners are looking at, you know, they've been in business 10 years, 20 years. They're looking, okay, what's the next step for me? Uh, This thing that I loved to do is no longer fun and I want to do something different. Uh, So we work with them and talk about, uh, you know, again, what are the systems they need to have in place and how do we help them scale? And then in exchange, I ask them to, if they hire a company as an example for consulting, I ask them to take 20% of what they would pay in consulting fees and donate that to the charity of their choice. And, you know, our bigger work is really about how do we get more business owners to see themselves as vehicles for change? How can we use our business to fund causes that we care about? And how do we incorporate philanthropy into our business models? And where do people find out about that, that piece? Thank you. Yeah. So Legacy Leaders Global is our company um, and you can find out more. Uh, We have three live events each year and uh, we do those. We host those free of charge. We ask people to make a donation of their choice. We choose a charity partner and do business trainings on different systems and business. So Limitless Women is coming up in April. And then in the fall, we do an event called the Path to Freedom event. where We work on systems and operations and all that good, sexy stuff. And, uh, you know, lauragisborne.com is a easy place to find out more. Laura Gisborne, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell, or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.